0: The Apostle Paul in Romans says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. So what we're going to do this week is we're just going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Week one, we looked at at the life of Paul before he met Jesus. This week, we're going to look at that moment where he surrenders his life to the lordship of Christ. And I don't want to just look at the gospel and the power of the gospel in the life of Paul. I want you to look at the gospel in your own life. And, and let me just warn you, Christian, whenever we talk about the gospel, it's not for someone else. That the gospel has the power of salvation and justification, but also of sanctification, making us more like Jesus. <clears throat> that that the, gospel, the gospel's power in our lives, it, it saves us from in the past, the present, and the future. That the gospel saves us in the past from the penalty of our sin. In the present, from the power of sin over our life, and in the future, from the presence of sin, one day in glory, there won't even be sin's presence. That's why everybody, everybody will be plenty to eat, healthy, renewed body. We don't need lawyers and policemen anymore. Praise God, all right? That it's just the very presence of God permeates all of glory. And so today what we're going to look at is the gospel. How is someone redeemed? So if you'll pick it up in Acts chapter 26... Beginning, I'm going to back up one verse from what your notes say, and I'm going to start in 11. This is Paul on trial, and he's going to transition now from what his life was like before Christ to how he met Jesus. Verse 11. It says, And I punished Christians, I punished them, or Christians, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make Christians blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even into foreign cities. And now we're going to pick it up where our notes pick up. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Before we go much further, I want to point out that God came and rescued Paul in the darkest hours of his life. That Paul was looking for a church, but he wasn't looking for a church like you look for a church. See, you look for a church to attend. He looked for a church to kill people. See the difference? That, That he was in the darkest hours of his life full of rage and fury, trying to wipe out the followers of the way. And it's that very moment that God is going to meet him right where he is. That's why we say over and over and over here that the gospel helps us to understand that God is not in love with some future version of you once you get your act together. God's not waiting to love you once you quit cussing so much and once you become a better wife or once you start tithing. Or once you can uh, attend church to get a whole series, you know, like attend all the weeks of a series. And then he will move in your direction. That's not how it works. That God meets Paul in the very darkest hours of his life. And that's why we know that it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. And so no matter how bad you think you've been, because I've got news for you, it's worse, all right? But you ain't as bad as Paul. I don't think we have Christian killers in the room. I hope not, all right? If not, I hope God saves you before the end of the service when I'm standing down here to meet everybody. But, but that's where he meets him, in the very darkest places. And then look, look what happens. Verse 13. This is, Paul's going to describe that moment in time where he surrenders his life to Jesus. Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on, on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. A part of the reason Paul describes this, and, the, and the, the author Luke writes this down, is because he wants us to know that this isn't like just a vision. This was an actual event. Because people tell me, some, you know, people kind of me at our church and be like, oh, I had a vision, and they describe it, and I to say, I think that's some, you know, some residuals from your college days got stirred up around there or something. Else. All right, that doesn't sound like it's reality. And so this isn't like I had a dream or God came to me in the night. This was an actual event. Light shines, and then the Bible says, everybody gets kicked off their horse, verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what we're going to do for the remainder of our time is we are going to walk through the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation. We're going to put on display who God is and how he saves. And as we look at the doctrine of salvation... We'll, we'll get a glimpse into who God is, the nature and the character of God. That God is love. And since He loves, His love is poured out upon us. And He decides to save men and women and students and children like us. And what I want you to see here is I, I want you to see who God is and how He saves. Because there are many of you in the room and you've surrendered your life to Christ. And it worked, but you don't know how it worked. And you don't have to know how something works in order for it to work, right? Like anybody that's going to use your smartphone this afternoon. I mean, what kind of voodoo magic is that? I don't know. But you pick it up and you push the buttons and it works. And so I want to unpack a little bit of um, what theologians call the Orta salutis. Orta salutis is Latin. It means the order of salvation. Now, here's the, here's the problem with systematic theology is that God isn't quite as systematic as systematic theologians like to make him out to be. The Orta Salutis has ten steps of salvation. Eight of the ten steps are covered here in Paul's salvation. We're not going to talk about the last two. The last two are dying and go to heaven. So we're going to just kind of leave those for, you know, your funeral or something. But we're going to go uh, one through eight here today. And they're all true. The doctrine of salvation is very, very important. But I would say this, that, um, that it's way more organic than, than the steps that we're going to walk through. Okay? It would be like trying to track the order of you falling in love with your spouse. You know, step one, I saw her across the room. Step two, Chili's. Step I don't know what your order would be. But, you know, all the things might be true that you write down, but it didn't quite go that way. You know, it's a little messier. But that's what we're going to look at. And so, as we unpack these verses, I want you to see how we are redeemed. How we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, just in this first sentence, in verse in uh, verse 14, you see all kind of stuff here. And, we, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice... Saying to me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the ghost. First and foremost, is that Jesus pursues Paul. Paul isn't seeking God. You get this? That Paul's looking for church, but again, he's looking to wipe a church out, not attend one and become a member. And Jesus seeks Paul. Paul does not go looking for God. And so, um, you need to know this, that the Lord is coming after you. And that's a positive thing. That the Lord initiates salvation and not the other way around. This past week, I think on Thursday, um, I was filming a, a video for a church planting conference that our staff is going to attend this fall, I mean this spring. And in fact, we, we all attended two years ago to try to learn how to plant a church. So we went to their conference, they taught us how to do a church, we came here to church, and now they were asking us all these questions. And, and because of our attendance boom, you know, since we opened, the guy interviewing me said, are you an attractional church? Are you an attractional church? And I said, well, I mean, I know what you're asking because, you know, there's labels for all these different kind of churches. And I go, actually, I wouldn't say we're an attractional church. We're, we're, kind of a, um, we're kind of an insulting church. That's kind of our deal. He's like, what do you mean? I go, well, people come in and, and, and we want to make it easy for people to hear the gospel. So we've got people in the parking lot people holding the doors. And we try to be friendly, invite everybody in and make room for everyone. But once they get here, we're not really trying to attract them to our programs or attract them to to attend our church in fact we just insult them you come in the room hey welcome hope everybody's comfortable um hey uh you are a wretched black-hearted sinner and if if you're looking for the lightning bolts because you're in church then it's, you probably deserve them and, and you think you're bad it's worse than you think you're not just bad you're dead you're not a bad person that needs to get better you're a dead person that only in christ can be made alive and so we love you and you're wretched and that's kind of our that's kind of how we roll here but it is because we care for people. It is because we love people. And instead of trying to be an attractional church, we try to talk about the, the, the glory and the magnificence of God. And then God attracts people to God instead of us trying to attract people to environments. That's kind of the, the difference. And then our people leave and they're mad. They're like, I can't believe this guy. he tell me, call me black hearted. And then they go and get six friends and be like, come to this church and me and listen to how awful this is. And everybody gets in there. And then in two weeks, they're all Christians. That's how that works. And that's our strategy, which means we don't really have one. So, but it's because it's cause just Jesus pursues. And, and I know I just said this, but Jesus loves and saves Paul at his worst, not after he got his act together. That in his worst moment, then Jesus goes after Paul. And in your worst moment, so if you think you've sinned so bad this week, that God could never love you or save you, then I've got good news. You are perfectly positioned to become a Christian. Because Paul, in high school, would have been least likely to become a Christian. You know why? Because he grew up trying to kill them. And you know how hard it is to to witness to somebody while they're trying to kill you? It's probably why Jesus said, back up, guys, I'll take this one one one-on-one, all right? So he didn't use anybody. He just came one-on-one with Paul. He was least likely to ever be a church guy. And he surrenders his life to the Lordship of Christ. Listen, there's there's so much good stuff that that you can unpack there. It's why we say that God's not in love with some future version of you. That God does not help those who help himself. That God's not waiting for you to get your act together and then he'll meet you halfway. There's no halfway here. He does it all. It's not by works that you have been saved, but it's by the good work of Christ on the cross that saves you. That Jesus is not a crutch. Because a crutch is a little bit of you and a little bit of him. No, no, no. It's all him. He's a stretcher. You're all busted up. Okay? You're not going to limp your way into heaven. You're dead. He's going to pick you up and tote you in. That's why in heaven no one walks with a limp or a swagger. Okay? Because he carries you in. That's how that works. And what's beautiful about the, the testimonies that we hear at this church and the baptisms that happen in this church, that there's no one outside of the, the arm length of the Lord. All right? There's a guy that we're baptizing at the 522 service. He attended 9 o'clock this morning. And, and uh, two years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, one of our staff people had been praying for this guy to receive Jesus, praying, 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 trying to reach out to him. And she says to me, it'll take a miracle for the Lord to save this guy. He's the least likely savable person on the planet. And he gets baptized tonight at 522. So here's the truth. It takes a miracle for all of us to be saved, all right? God saves those that are near, those of you that grew up in church. Praise God for your good parents that would grow you up in the grace of God. But you need to be saved from Sunday school. And then those of you just heathen, debauchery people, that's why you feel at home here. Praise God that God's arms were long enough to reach out to you. I love this verse in Isaiah 59. God's arms are not too short to save. Listen, we do not serve a T-Rex god with a big old mouth and big old teeth and biting everybody. Little tiny arms that I can't quite reach. So I'll just bite your head off. That is not our God. Big, long arms. So listen, Christian. A part of what Paul's testimony lets us know is that there's no one too far away from God to be saved. He can reach them all. So don't give up on people that God's not going to give up on. You keep praying. You keep inviting. You keep sharing. You keep loving. Why? Because God saves. We don't save. And so Jesus loves and saves Paul at his worst, not at his best. And now, and look what Jesus says when he shows up. Paul says, a voice says to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. The invitation was personal. He called him by name in his own language. Christ's call to you is personal. It's my hope and prayer that today some of you would hear him call your name in a language that you could understand. You know, folks, it's why I preach the way I preach. It's because of verses like this. That I don't. I, first of all, I don't think I'll ever be accused of being a deep preacher. You know, because what a lot of preachers, the way they preach, God bless them, is that they use big ideas, big theological terms that you'd have to go to seminary to understand what they mean. And people line up to come and take notes. Right, everybody's in there and they got their notebooks. And he's talking big ideas, big I word, big words, theological terms. People writing it down. And then, and then they Christians moo. You ever hear Christian moo? Like, the pastor says something really good, and they go, mmm. You ever hear him doing that? That's how white people say amen, you know. uh, Mmm. And then people over there taking notes, taking notes, leaning over, going, wow, this is deep. Like, I know. What is he talking about? I have no idea. But it must be spiritual. So that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to speak in a language that we can understand. I believe the gospel so much that I believe it's my job to unpack the truths of the Scripture in a language that we can just understand, right? And so if if I never get accused of being deep, that's fine with me. I want to be a part of a movement that God saves. Those are near and that are far. And look what he does. He calls Saul by name. From the very beginning, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, God's been seeking his people and calling them by name. In Revelation chapter 3, right after sin has entered the world, Adam and Eve, our first parents sin, they try to become their own gods. <clears throat> and then the Bible says that they realize that they are naked and they feel ashamed. I mean, imagine that wake-up call, right? You're just, I don't know how long they were hanging out in the garden naked and unashamed. Then sin enters and they go, oh man, really? For the whole time. Wow. And then they're ashamed. Imagine before that, they're naked and unashamed. But just by the way, wouldn't that be awesome? All right, 40 and up crowd, that you step out of the shower and be like, Glorious. Because the older it gets, then it ain't so awesome. right. Struggling. But then, yeah, I don't know where that's, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Just truth. And then what Adam and Eve do in their shamefulness is they run and they hide and they sow fig leaves to cover their own shamefulness. It's the first form of religion. And you know what the Bible says in Genesis 3, 8 and 9? That God walks through the garden in the cool of the day and calls out to Adam and Eve. That's what he does from the beginning. And they're trying to play hide and seek. If you go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus is writing a letter to the church at Laodicea. The church of Laodicea is alive on the outside and it's dead on the inside. And Jesus says, behold... I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and invites me in, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. A personal relationship with Jesus. That from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, it is a personal call to salvation. And from the beginning of time until this very day in this very church, God is walking through the garden of your life calling out to his children. And anyone anyone can invite him in and have that personal relationship with the Lord. But oftentimes what we do is what Adam and Eve do and they try to play hide and seek with an almighty and sovereign God. And do you know how silly we look when we try to play hide and seek with God as if you could hide from the almighty God? And I know how silly it looks because I have a 40-year-old at my house who is the worst hide and seek player of all time. We are all sitting in the living room the other day. There's some kids at our house and Reagan comes in and she hides behind a lamp like her head is behind the lamp, and it didn't even cover like her whole head. Her head, and then the rest of her whole self is out there with a Reagan, what are you doing? She goes, I'm hiding. <laughs> You're really not good at this, darling. And then not only is she not good visually at hide and seek, but she doesn't realize that there's an audio portion to the game also. So if you walk into the room and go and you see all of herself, you know, sticking out from under the bed, or her head's under the pillow, and there's the rest of her, and, and then you say, Reagan, are you in here?" Then she starts giggling, "Hee!" <laughs> and you go, I see you right there, Reagan and she, goes, "How did you find me?" Because you have an amazing dad, that's how. All right? And sometimes that's how silly we look when we run from God, but here's the thing: that God runs after us, and his invitation is personal. His invitation is personal. That he speaks Paul's language, and he calls Paul by name, then he asks him this question, "Why are you persecuting me?" To which Saul of Tarsus could say, Objection? I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your followers. Listen, Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, maybe you've heard that Jesus said things like, The church is my body, or I will never leave you or forsake you. And so, what Jesus is saying to Paul here is to persecute my church is to persecute me. So, that whole church is my body was not just an, an allegory, it was It was literal that when you hurt, when we, church, when we hurt, then Jesus feels our pain. He takes that personally. Now, on the positive side of that, that means if you were walking through pain and suffering, then Christ is with you. He's more than with you. He's actually in you. That's why he would say things like, I will never leave nor forsake you. And for those of you that when the service is over, you go up and you sign up for a mission trip, and you go to wherever it is, Jamaica, Panama, Costa Rica, Uganda, Brazil, and you serve the least of these little ones in this world, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these brothers of mine, you also do for me. That there's something supernatural about the gathering of the saints that Jesus says, I am present there in a way that I'm not present anywhere else. And that's why he says, why are you persecuting me and then he makes this statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were these sharp sticks that the farmers or whoever were driving carts that they would fashion. And they would stick to the front of the cart. So it would be behind the animal and in the front of the cart. So that the animal that was pulling the cart, whether it was a horse or a donkey or an ox or whatever... That that sometimes when they would get frustrated or aggravated and they would want to kick the cart, then they would put the goads there so that when it kicked the goads, it would cause injury to the animal. It would hurt them. It would cause pain to them. And essentially what Jesus is saying here to Paul, and it's true for every single one of us, is that whenever we reject God, we think we're rejecting Him and hurting Him, but we're the ones that suffer. That to reject God, God is to is to actually run towards life as it ought not be and when you surrender your life to the lordship of Christ you're surrendering life as it ought not be for the abundant life that Christ has purchased for us at the cross and so when we reject God when we turn our back to God and our face to this world or to others or to ourselves or to religion all those things we talked about last week let me just warn you it's kicking against the goats it's a self-inflicted wound and pain is coming. And, and the manufacturer of anything knows this. If you, if, you take, if you take something that has been manufactured or created and use it in a way that it was not created to be used, it's going to break down. Soon it's going to break down. You take your vacuum cleaner and you try to use it as a sledgehammer. It'll work a couple times, times, but, but not for very long. And then you've lost your sledgehammer and your vacuum cleaner. And you were created by God for God. That God created you almost like an engine. And the fuel that you run on is Him. And you try to run on any other fuel than Him. Whether it's yourself, religion, the world, or others. And I'm just telling you. The breakdown is coming. And so when we talk about surrendering your life to Jesus. What you're just surrendering is you're surrendering life as it ought not be. And you're surrendering to the, what you were created to do, that you were created for God and by God. And that's why Jesus says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Like you think you're going to hurt the cart? Actually, you're just hurting yourself. And any time we reject God and turn to any other functional Savior, the pain is on its way. And so Paul's going to respond in 15. And Paul says, and I said, who are you, Lord? Which is really kind of a funny question, right? Because he answers his question in his question. Who are you? Lord, who else could it be? Bright light, out of heaven, know you by name, speak in your language, kick everybody off the horse, talking to you personally. You see, Paul knows who it is. Just, I don't know why, but he's just going to ask anyway. Can I just tell you, you know the same feeling, don't you? There's some of you that God has been wooing unto himself here at this church. and, And you just started showing up. And you didn't even like it at first, except for the next week. You came and brought friends. And you've been just being drawn unto him and drawn unto him. And, and you can't even believe. You're thinking, oh, no, I might become one of those Christian people. I can't believe it. I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet he's drawing you and drawing you. And you've got all this internal stuff in your head and your heart going on. And let's just be honest. You know it's the Lord. You know it's the Lord. Because I can tell you it's not. It ain't me. You notice how many baptism videos they start out? Well, I started going to church, and Joby spoke right to me. Let me tell you something. I don't know you. I mean, I would love to know everybody here, but I don't think I can. But I don't know you, and nobody sends me an email about you. I've literally had people walk up at the end of the service and said, my wife emailed you, didn't. No, I'm not emailing with your wife. I didn't know you were going to be here. That's the Holy Spirit penetrating parts of your heart. If you'll just pay attention, that's the Lord stirring around in here. Did you hear hear AJ's testimony? That's what he was talking about. He said that that when Caitlin, one of our youth ministers, gave that that gospel invitation, that some stuff just started stirring around in here that he could have quoted Paul and said, Who are you, Lord? Because it's the Lord doing His thing in and among you. And the Lord said to me, the second half of 15, And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now what kind of sinner must you be for Jesus to just go one-on-one For salvation, right? He looks at heaven and all the saints and goes, "Uh, y'all back up. I got this one. And he comes face to face with Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul. Verse 16. Here's his command to Paul. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, to those in which I will appear you. Now, this is is beautiful, and, and it's hard to get our minds around. That not only are we saved from something, but we're saved to something. So not only is Paul saved from sin and death, but he's also saved to purpose and mission. That that it's like God comes down on the ultimate rescue mission. That as soon as he breaks us out of our very own prison, he says, come on, you get to join the rescue team. That it's not over. That we get to become a part of the rescuer's immediately after that we've been rescued. This is what we're going to spend our entire next week talking about. And then he's going to give him kind of a mission or a purpose statement right here. Verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to. And here's what he's going to do. Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Those verses right there contain what the theologians would call the order salutis, the order of salvation. So here's how it goes. We've already talked about the fact that Jesus pursues, that Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, that Jesus came after Paul. And isn't that your story too? Because I'm just going to tell you, he came after me. This was not my idea. I, I thought I was doing just fine without him. Little did I know that I was on a pathway to death and destruction. And then by his goodness and grace, he comes after me. And then there's the gospel call in my case, an old football coach told me about Jesus. In Paul's case, Jesus tells Paul about Jesus. And then he rescues him, puts him on his team, and says, all right, now this is what we're going to team up and go do together. The third thing is, it says, to open their eyes. The, the theological term there is regeneration. Regeneration. Essentially what that means is that God draws men and women unto, the, unto himself, and he softens their heart. Or lets the scales fall off of their eyes. And that only an almighty God could do that. One of the things we hear in our church over and over and over is, I grew up in church my whole life. I've never heard the gospel. I grew up in church my whole life. And for the very first time, it made sense that I could have a relationship with Jesus. That's regeneration. That means the Holy Spirit in you began to let you see as God sees that he took out that heart of stone that is crooked and depraved and wretched and black-hearted and he replaced it with a new heart, with his own heart that allows you to respond to him in worship and in adoration and love and in fellowship. That's all part of regeneration. It's like a new birth or a new heart is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light. That's what we would call repentance and conversion. That they used, you, you, We all, we used to be focused on the dark things of this world. Again, whether it was us, uh, the approval of others, religion, the things of this world. And then by faith, by the gift of faith from God, He gives us the ability to repent and to turn from darkness to light. And now aim our lives at the goodness and the mercy of God. In, in our context at 1122, it would be that moment When you would say, when you would raise your hand and say, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That would be that moment when you cross from death to life. Now, for some of you, that is a moment in time. Like I could take you back to Veniceville, South Carolina when I was 13 years old at Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center when I became a Christian. For others of you, it's more of a process. It's more of a process. It doesn't matter which way, if your salvation was like Paul's on the road to Damascus, or if it happened over time, but in eternity, there was a moment when you turned from darkness into light. And that's that's repentance and conversion. And then he goes on and says, and from the power of Satan to God. That we were enemies of God. So if you think you're bad, it's worse than you think. The Bible says, Jesus says these audacious things like you were a child of the devil. I know, can you believe it would be so cruel as to call you a child of the devil. But that's what he says. That there's only two teams, and if you've not surrendered your life to the lordship of Christ, you're playing on the bad team. And then, by the grace of God, not by anything that you have done, that God chooses to make his enemies, to draw them unto himself, that they could be on his team. It's like an eternal game of Red Rover, Red Rover, and he just sends you over. But instead of you trying to break through the hands, he wraps his arms around you when, when you make your way over. And so all of us, every single one of us, were dead in our transgressions. We were enemies of God. By nature, we were under the wrath of God. But by God's grace and mercy, he draws us unto himself. And then this is what he does. That we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The theological term there is Justification. Now, this isn't a totally accurate definition, but it'll always help you remember what justified means. It's justified, never sinned. By what Christ did on the cross, He paid for my sin. And so if I receive Christ, I can receive His payment for my sin, and I stand justified before God. Justified, never sinned. That I'm made right before God, not by anything I've done, but by what Christ has done. Now, for a long time, I had, I mean, I had some some serious questions about what theologians would call substitutionary atonement, you know? I'd say, God, it seems like you created this whole system, and then when you got to the end of Genesis chapter 3, you'd painted yourself in a corner. And when people sin, you were like, oh, dang, now i got to send my only begotten son to die on a cross. Why does somebody have to die for you to forgive us? I don't understand. I forgive people all the time, but no one has to die. I mean, you know, when people sin against me and they come and say, hey, will you forgive me? I go, I'd, I'd love to, but you've got to sacrifice your cat, all right? So you kill your cat, and then me and you will be made whole. So if I'm just a you know, regular guy and I can forgive people, then why can't you forgive people? Well, here, here's the thing. All of us tend to um, underestimate our sin and overestimate our goodness. That when we sin, it's a slap in the face of an almighty God, an eternal, everlasting God. And God is just. And God is holy. And it is not in His character or nature to just overlook sin. And for us to even think that He could leave sin unpunished, it's because we don't understand the magnitude of a rebellion against God. And that we're not just victims of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, but we are are glad participants in it every day. That we're enemies of God. And in eternity... It's like blood is the currency. And so Christ pays the debt that you and I have created. And if it seems kind of extreme, it's because we don't understand the extremeness of our sinfulness. I'll I'll give you this illustration. We bought a house um, this summer. Brand new house. We love it. It's awesome. It's just God's blessing upon us, and we love it. And it's new. So when stuff's new, you know how you try to keep it new for as long as you can keep it new? Um, And my wife's going to win the record of the newness-keeping ward right because she our house is always super clean and all that one day a few months ago i hear this scream out of the bedroom and i go walking in there and reagan capri our beautiful precious little sinful four-year-old has a uh uh, marker uh, and she's writing on the walls just writing on the walls not just one wall but all of them that she could get to she's just writing on the wall and so gretchen's going no in a very tender loving caring mom kind of (laughs) way That will not scar her as an adult. And then I and then we come in, and so she's totally busted. And she just looks at us, she's like, I mean, she gets all she knows she's in trouble and she gets sad and cries and goes to her room and then later she's like, I'm sorry. So in that moment, what am I to do? What am I to do? See, do I just go, Oh, don't worry about it, Reagan? See, here's the thing. Reagan doesn't even realize the magnitude of what she's done. She doesn't realize that to, that to return the walls back to their original condition, she doesn't even know what that takes, does she? She doesn't know that that requires a trip to Lowe's and always two or three. You can never just go to Lowe's once. It's like a yo-yo effect. You have to go back three times. And she doesn't know about matching paint. And there's, there's not just, it's not even just color. It's like flat, semi-gloss, you know, you got to get that right thing. And what if I were to say say to her, okay, Reagan, you have to to return these walls to their original condition. Why? Because you have a holy and just mom and these walls will not be overlooked. They will be returned to their original condition. She doesn't even have the ability to pull it off herself, does she? She's four years old. She did not know where Lowe's is. She doesn't have a job to pay for the stuff. How's she even going to get there? And even if she rallied all of her toddlers together, you know, let's unite... And they've gotten their little wagon train and they made their way over Atlantic and into Lowe's and they got the right color of paint and the right flat, semi-gloss, whatever that is. And they got all the tools, the brushes, the rollers and then they all made it back to the bedroom. Do you think think Reagan with a bucket of paint in our bedroom makes it better or worse? (laughs) That's religion. So what do we do as parents? So as parents, we do for her What she cannot do for herself, even though she was the one that created the mess. Because we love her, we pay the price that she created. And she doesn't even know the magnitude of it all. Substitutionary atonement. Substitute, you know what that means. That means somebody else. Atonement just means payment. And when Christ died on the cross, he made a payment for our sin. To to forgive us of our sin. And we don't even understand the magnitude of it all. Theologians use this term double imputation. That that our sins were imputed upon Christ. And his righteousness was imputed unto us. Last week at 1122 we had a baptism. And there was a piece of the video that explains substitutionary atonement in an, an amazing way. So I've asked one of our young theologians via video to explain what justified by faith or substitutionary atonement means. So take just a second and watch this. We have sin. Jesus, God doesn't have sin. There's a consequence for us. There's no consequence for Jesus since he doesn't have sin. And then we switched places. So he took the consequence because he loves us so much. That's substitutionary atonement. Simple enough for an eight-year-old to understand and explain. Complex, so complex that we'll never fully understand how that works until we get to glory. But we switch places. And he takes the consequences for our sin. And we get the inheritance that was rightfully his, which is everlasting life with the Father called double imputation. Now, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 would say it this way, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God. And so that's how this happens, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among. Now, we've got to stop there because it's one thing to forgive somebody. It's another thing to adopt them into your family. So not only does the gospel justify us, but then God adopts us into our family. That he chooses us, that he changes our name, that we become rightful heirs of all that, that is his. So, those of you, uh, this is probably most of our crowd. Remember the last time you were in court, all right? And you're standing before the judge, and it's one thing for the judge to go, not guilty. It's another thing for him to sentence you innocent and then say, and now you are coming to my house. And you're going to take my last name. And I'm going to take on all your bills and all your debt. And I'm going to pay for your school. And I'm going to raise you here. And I'm going to feed you. And, and you one day, all, everything I have is yours. You see that at the cross of Christ, we are justified. And at his resurrection, we become co-heirs with our brother Jesus. We are adopted into the family of God. It's why all throughout the Bible you see this family language, brother and sister. It's why we talk about this being one big dysfunctional family. Because we are adopted into the very family of God. It says, so a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That the gospel doesn't just justify us and make us right before God. So eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And as soon as you do, you begin this sanctifying process. To be sanctified just means to become more and more and more like Jesus. And there's two sides of sanctification. First of all, there's the, there's, we admit, I'm not there yet. That's why I'm okay with letting you know that it's okay to not be okay. That's why I'm okay with letting you know that God still has a lot of sanctifying to do in me. He's still got a lot of me to chisel away, so I look more and more and more like him. But I'm also confident in this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That many of you are more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. And here's the thing. And you serve a God, and I serve a God, and we want to be the kind of church that celebrates that sanctifying process. And the only, the best illustration I know of, and if I ever think of a new one, I'll share it, but I can't. It's when every parent in here understands this at a soul level. Remember when your kid took their first steps? you remember that whole process and how exciting that was? There's your kid. They really hadn't done anything awesome yet. You know, they're kind of just standing there, and then they would sit up. And JP skipped the whole crawling thing. He, just, he, he could sit up for a while and spit up and then get one leg, and then he just went straight to cruising. Remember that when they climb up? And they just hold on to stuff. And you have to start moving all the stuff up in your house so they don't drag things on their head. And you've got to start putting bumpers everywhere so you don't have, you know, concussed kids growing up in your house. And JP would stand up on that, uh, like on the couch or whatever. And then he'd get brave and he'd let go. And he'd get the wobbles so he'd grab back on. Remember that? And then do you remember that day when they, they let go of something? And I don't even think they meant to. But their eyes caught something else that got their attention. And the way God has created those toddlers, they have the enormous cranium that's too big for the rest of their body. And that cranial momentum just started leaning and then it was just survive or die. I mean, I think that's what it was. And so in order not to face plant into the floor, they put out a foot and then another foot and then another foot and then they usually wipe out. There's not a kid ever that on their first step went, I meant to do that. And then they just walked. No. No. They crash, but then right after they they even accidentally take two or three steps, what do you do as parents? You go, he's walking. Oh my goodness, he is walking. Did you video that? Can you Instagram that? Can we go Facebook, Twitter? Can we put it on YouTube? Call the grandparents. The boy is walking. And then you're like, did you see him walk? I think I see running back in his future. He had a little wiggle. I'm pretty sure that stiff arm went out. I'm just saying pretty sure that's where this is going and you celebrate that thing like crazy why because your kid is walking and it doesn't matter if they take two steps or 12 steps and you're so focused on the walk there's very little to do with the fall there's not a parent in here that goes get up what is wrong with you three steps are you kidding you're 10 months old get up quit crying rub some dirt on it get back in the game Start blaming one another for whose side of the family that moves from. <laughs> you don't do that. What do you do? You cheer, you celebrate. It's, it's, it's part of the sanctification process. Now, eventually you get used to it. JP's eight when he walked into my room today and go, ah, He's still doing it. No. <laughs> but you celebrate progress. Look, we're the kind of church that, not based on what you're trying to do, but based on the gospel work inside of you, we celebrate the steps. And some of, you are, some of you today are going to take that very first step to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Others of you are just taking some baby steps. Some of you took a huge step today and you, and you publicly profess Christ as Lord and Savior and, and we're baptized and we celebrate that. Some of you are going to take a step uh, to join a disciple group or go on a mission trip or talk to a friend about Jesus or, or, or do the reading plan or whatever it is. And it's just the gospel of Jesus sanctifying you to be more and more like him by faith in him, not by trying harder. By putting your faith in Him. So that's the order of salvation. Now here's the thing. It's one thing to know the order of salvation. It's quite another thing to know Jesus and to be saved. So I want to ask you. Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? Because today you could. Today you could surrender your life to Jesus. And all of these theological realities could become... But could become instantaneously real in this place and in your life. Look in your notes. I put it this way. I want everybody to get out their notes. This is an all skate, okay? Everybody get out your notes and look. Where it says the point, there's a big blank there for your name. I want you to write your name there. Because when we talk about the gospel, so many people think, man, somebody else needs to hear this. Jesus was coming after, after Paul on the road to Damascus. And this day, he wants you to ask you this question. I want you to write your name there. There's a pen right in front of you. And I want you to write out your name. Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? See, that same guy, Saul of Tarsus, his name gets changed to the Apostle Paul. And he becomes a church planter. And he writes this letter to a bunch of Christians in Rome. And in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 he says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you been saved? Because today you could believe in your heart that that Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. That doesn't mean do you just believe that it happened in your mind, but in your heart, I mean at a soul relational level, you could believe. That Greek word for believe is pistuo. It means to believe, trust and commit your whole life into. This isn't just a mental ascent, but you could believe in your heart For some of you, in this very moment, you hear God's voice in your life. He's calling to you that this is the day that you believe. And if that's you, then you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You surrender. I'm not going to be Lord of my life anymore, Jesus. I'm claiming you as Lord. And then he explains that out a little bit. And then in verse 13 of Romans 10, he says this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because from Genesis to Revelation and... On the road to Damascus, the almighty father and creator has been walking through his creation, calling out to his children. Anybody that responds, Lord, I surrender, will be saved, will be justified, will be adopted, will be sanctified, and one day will be made perfect in glory. Today you have that opportunity. Would you please bow your head and pray with me? If you say, that's me today for the very first time, I hear God calling me. Maybe you don't hear hear it audibly, but you know deep in your heart, you believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And you're ready to confess Jesus as Lord of your life. Would you raise your hand? Would you repent and say, Jesus, here I am. I confess my sins. You are my Lord. Look, you can say whatever words you want. It's a personal relationship between you and Jesus. You just confess Him as Lord, and and the Bible says that you are being saved in this very moment, that you're being saved from the penalty of your past sins, you'll be saved from the power of sin in your life right now, and in future glory, you will be saved from the presence of sin, so that you will be made whole and perfect in a relationship with your Father in heaven. Dear Father in heaven, we love you, we thank you that you saved, that just like from the beginning in Genesis, to the end in Revelation, to the the road to Damascus in Paul's life, and this day in this church and this service. God, that bright lights are shining down. Jesus, that you are calling out people by name in a, in a way that they can understand. And people are repenting. That sins are being forgiven. Sins are being washed away. We're being adopted into your family. And we're being made to look more and more and more like you. God, we thank you that, that it's your work that we lean into, not our own. God, we love you so much because you first love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? Church, we have a lot to respond to. We have a lot to celebrate. Worship is our response to God for who He is and what He's done. And today, in this place, there were men and women who surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. And we we celebrate that. And so we we respond to God by giving our tithes and offerings. You know how to do that if you're a regular. We respond to God by coming to the altar and just just spending time one-on-one with Him. And we respond to God by joining our voices together in worshiping Him in songs. So let us respond.